The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Now, I read a book recently that uh, offered this thought experiment, and, and I want you to kind of roll with me for a second on this. I want you to imagine that uh, you have a friend that you have been praying for for years and years and years. You've been praying that this friend, we'll call him George, you've been praying for George that he would come to know Jesus. Maybe he's a, a friend from high school. Maybe he's, a, maybe, maybe he's a cousin. Maybe he's sort of a distant cousin. Maybe he's a, a friend from college. Whatever it is, you've been praying that George would come to know Jesus. Maybe George, for you, is, a, is, is one of your grown children, and you've been praying for years and years that this grown child of yours would return to the things that you raised him with. You've been praying, you've been praying, you've been praying, and you're excited about what seems to be evidence of the Lord's work in his heart over the last several months. You've been talking over text message, and you're really excited about this, that George seems to have come to faith recently. George seems to have uh, sort of laid down his arms and turned to the Lord Jesus for salvation. And George is newly married, by the way, to his wife, Georgina, we'll call her. She's come to faith as well. It's great that they found each other, George and Georgina, with those names. They just got married, and not only are they new to the faith, they're also moving to a new city. Uh, George is working for a company that's recently relocated them. Both George and Georgina, they've moved to this new city. You know that George and Georgina are kind of shy. They're not really the type of people to put themselves out out there, but you know that they're in a really crucial spot right now, both in terms of their faith and in terms of their relationship with one another. You know one of the most essential things that they need is what? A church. And so you pray that they would find a church, that George and Georgina and this new city, this, this new faith in the Lord Jesus, newly married, that they would find a church. My guess is is that you would pray that they would find a church because you know how vital fellowship is for faithfulness in the Christian walk. Again, especially for a new Christian and a Christian moving to a new city, you pray that they would find a church family to lock arms with. But more than that, I would guess that you would pray for a certain kind of church, not just any church, but a church to do certain things. For instance, you would pray that they would find a church that would teach the Bible, that they'd be faithful to the scriptures, obviously. But you know, actually, that there's more than that that you would pray for. You'd pray that they would be a part of a church with good pastors who would take notice of them, who would give attention to them. But even more than that, I I would guess that you would pray that they would lock in with a church that has a body that is characterized by things like care, invitations into their homes, and mutual shepherding. My guess is you would would pray that they would find a church full of people who would invite them to coffee and lunch, who have pastors that would notice them, yes, but a church who notices people, who are committed to moving the needle towards godliness with every interaction. In other words, what I think you would pray for George and Georgina is that they would find a church with a culture of discipleship. That's my guess. That's what we're going to spend some time talking about this morning is being, uh, striving to be a church that is characterized by a culture of discipleship. Now, typically, we like to walk through books of the Bible. Next Sunday, we're going to start walking through uh, uh, 
First Peter together as a church family. But this morning, I thought it'd be helpful to sort of pause and think about 2024 and think specifically about discipleship as it relates to our church family over the course of 2024. We're going to look at two passages. Colossians 1, we're going to look at verses 24 through 29, uh, part of which Melinda just read for us a moment ago. In Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. So if you're in Colossians, you can go ahead and flip to Ephesians, put your finger there. We'll plop in Colossians for a bit and then go to Ephesians. Let's, let's begin uh, Colossians 1, starting verse 24. Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him, that is Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I think what we can see in this passage first is Paul's vision for maturity. Paul's vision for maturity. Now, what is a disciple? If I were to ask you that, how would you answer that question? What is a disciple? We'd say something probably like a disciple is a follower of Jesus, a Christian. We think about how in the Gospels, Jesus gathers a group of men around himself, which are called his disciples, his students, his apprentices, you might say. And then in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus commands those guys to go from there and make disciples of all nations, teaching them and baptizing them. The word disciple is used a handful of times in Acts to refer to Christians, But it's those, sort of generally speaking, as it's used, it is those whose lives are devoted to Jesus, devoted to following after Jesus. Now, in this passage, we get a little bit of a glimpse as to how Paul devotes himself to making disciples of all nations, how Paul devotes his life to the Great Commission. Paul is unique in that he is called to be sort of, I mean, all of the apostles are capital A apostles, but if we could say it this way, Paul is like the capitalist of the capital A apostles in a lot of ways. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. In this uh, passage, Paul talks about filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Paul's not saying that there was something lacking and that Jesus' sacrifice was insufficient. Paul's saying, rather, that his calling is unique and that he is to go suffer for the cause of the gospel and seeing the Gentiles be brought in. That he's playing this kind of foundational, fundamental role in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul is laying down his life for the mission. Verse 29, he says that I am toiling for this, toiling to present people mature in Christ. But he says it's not me that's toiling, it's the Spirit of Christ that is working through me. Paul refers to himself as a minister or a servant of the gospel. This mystery, the mystery of Christ in us, salvation, the the, the mystery of Jesus uniting all things in himself, Jews, Gentiles, heaven and earth, hidden for ages, has now been made known. And Paul is devoting himself to making that mystery known. And so, verse 28, he says, Christ, we proclaim, my mission is to make Jesus and his gospel known, to see Jesus glorified. And he says, we proclaim Jesus so that, look again at verse 28, so that I can present everyone what? Mature in Christ. 
Paul's end game is to see Jesus glorified and to see disciples fully grown, fully formed, blossoming, being strengthened, maturing, growing in Christ. In Galatians 4, 19, Paul gives a similar idea. I have it on the screen. Paul says this. He's, he's speaking to the Galatians. He refers to, them, refers to them as my little children. Look at this. For whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. If it wasn't in the Bible, I'd be like, I don't, I don't feel like you're allowed to use that analogy, Paul. I mean, see Paul's vision for the Colossians and the Galatians and the Ephesians and safe to assume for us. He wants to see the disciples of the Lord Jesus fully formed, fully grown, mature. And he uses such strong language as to say, I'm, I'm like a woman who is groaning and laboring in childbirth. That, that I'm, 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 I'm like laboring and groaning to see that amongst God's people is maturity in Christ. And listen, this is more than just a vision for discipleship for Paul. This is an ache for Paul. A longing for Paul, a passion. This is something that he is suffering for and suffering to see. Christ in us. Such an incredible idea. In Colossians, he says that he wants to see the Colossians, and I think by extension us and all Christians all over the world, he wants to see them mature in Christ. And then in Galatians, he says he wants to see Christ formed in us. Paul is... uh, Elsewhere, he talks about how uh, by belief in Jesus through faith, we are united with Christ, and objectively, our status changes. We are granted all of the benefits that Christ possesses, his sonship, his status as a son before the Father, uh, the the inheritance. We're, We're given all of that by virtue of our union with Jesus. Objectively, our status has changed. But Paul also says that he wants us to subjectively grow in our likeness to Jesus. Uh, One analogy that we've used before is like in marriage. So Emily and I were married in October of 2010, October 9th, 2010, when South Carolina beat number one Alabama. It was, it was amazing. It was also my wedding day, which is amazing too, to be clear. Um, I only watched half of that game, and then I got married at halftime. Um, that wasn't the plan. I should stop talking about that now. Um, <laughs> So October night, 2010, Emily and I, we get married, and uh, her, her driver's license, objectively, her status changes. Her driver's license now says Emily Hoffman instead of Emily Hall, right? Objectively, she is now my wife. Objectively, on paper, I am now her husband. 13 years later, coming up on 14 years later, we have subjectively had to like sort of grow in that objective status change, right? We've had to learn how to be married. We've had to, had to learn how to be patient. We've had to learn how to sort of love one another as God has uniquely wired each of us. So similarly, as believers, when we place our faith in the Lord Jesus, objectively, our status changes. We are united in Christ. We are saved, We belong to Christ. His inheritance is ours. And subjectively, we are to grow in our likeness to Jesus day by day by day, moment by moment, year by year. And Paul says what he's groaning to see, what he's aching to see is God's people, Christ's people, growing into Christ, growing in our likeness to Jesus. Dallas Willard, theologian, talks about Christian maturity in this way. He describes discipleship, Christian maturity like this. He says, I must, through appropriate courses of action, 
become inwardly transformed by grace to become the kind of person in my inmost thoughts, feelings, attitudes, and directions of will who will routinely do the kinds of things Jesus said to do. I will then not be governed by anger, contempt, or lust. And I will be able to bless those who curse me, love my enemies, and so forth, because I am one in whom the character and the power of Christ has come to dwell through the processes of discipleship to Christ. He goes on to say elsewhere, discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. So that's Paul's vision for maturity, is that... Our status has changed. We're saved. We belong to Jesus. Now we grow into that new status. That we grow and are inwardly transformed to love what Jesus loves, to behave as Jesus behaved, to do the things that Jesus taught us to do. Again, day by day, year by year, moment by moment. That is Paul's vision for maturity for you, Christian. That's what Paul desires to see in you. And and let me even press it further. That's what the Lord Jesus desires to see in you, Christian, is to see you grow in maturity and likeness to himself. In fact, it's one of the the, the good parts of the good news of the gospel, is that Jesus is, is moved out of compassion to come to us and to die for our sins, yes, but to give us his Holy Spirit to help us to grow out of those nasty, awful, horrible vices of contempt anger, lust, envy, and everything else. I've said this before, and I actually feel very very uh, convinced of this, that one of the, the messages of hope that I think we have to offer the world is we can change. We can be different. We don't have to be governed by all of these nasty, horrible things that previously govern us. We can become untangled. We can be pulled out of ourselves. We can be made different. Gloriously, we can be made like Jesus that is on the table for you, Christian. And that's Paul's vision for you, for me, for us. So how do we get there? There's a lot that could be said, but I love what Paul says in Ephesians 4. Watch this. Ephesians 4, flip there, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Notice the end game. It's the same vision for maturity that's mentioned in Colossians and Galatians, right? Growing up into the head, into mature manhood, the fullness of the stature in Christ. It's language of being fully bloomed, adult, strong, wise, capable. That's Paul's vision for each of us. That's the end game for God's church, to be mature in Jesus. This looks like, here he lists a couple of things. It looks like stability, not being tossed to and fro by every new thing. It looks like truth speaking, speaking capital T truth to one another. It looks like speaking the truth in love. (laughs) 
having genuine brotherly or sisterly affection towards each other. It looks like unity in Christ, oneness as those who know Jesus. So we're stressing the book of Ephesians, central to the argument Paul is making is the unity that Jew and Gentile have with one another. In spite of their differing, conflicting backgrounds, maturity looks like pressing into unity. So Paul has maturity as Christians in mind here, but how does Paul say that God's people are to get there? Verse 11, look again. Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. The apostles and prophets are these once-for-all foundation. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, he says that the, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So you have that foundation plus the ongoing role of evangelist, shepherd, and teacher, these leaders that are given to the church to do what? Verse 12 to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. What do you think of when you hear saint? Mother Teresa? Augustine? Drew Brees? In the New Testament, saints are not some special class. No, saints are y'all, me, us, Christians. And so what Paul is saying here, if we sort of put all of this together, is that Jesus gave the apostles and the prophets plus the evangelist shepherds and teachers, these church leaders, to equip the saints to press one another towards the goal of maturity in Christ. The saints building up the body of Christ to attain unity in our faith and knowledge of Jesus to mature manhood, full stature in Christ. A culture of mutual upbuilding, a culture of being in pains together to see Jesus fully formed in one another, aka a culture of discipleship. Here's Paul's method for maturity. It's this. It's having a church culture where each of us takes ownership of presenting one another mature in Christ. When we talk about having a culture of discipleship, this is precisely what we mean. Having a church culture where each of us takes ownership of presenting one another mature in Christ. Let's reflect for a second back on George and Georgina. Let's think back on that little thought experiment earlier. We said that your friend George and Georgina, the things that we would pray for them is that they would find a church that would take seriously their discipleship, that would embrace them, that would have pastors that would see them and notice them, yes. But even better, would have a church body that is characterized by invitations into homes, an invitation to coffee, an invitation and encouragement towards Christ-likeness. We said what we, would, what we would pray for them is that they would find a church where each person would take ownership of presenting one another mature in Christ. We said that we would love that. We would love to see our friends land in a church like that. So let's flip this around. Let's ask ourselves this. Are you the answer to prayer of Christians in other cities? Are you, in the way that you are currently approaching and doing church, the answer to prayer that George and Georgina's parents have been praying? Are you contributing to a church to be filled with a culture of discipleship? Is that something that you personally have taken ownership of? Is there some older saint who would look to you and say, yes, you are the answer to the prayer that I have been praying for my son or my daughter for years? Are you prepared to be for George and Georgina what you would want for them in some other city? Do you follow me? I think that's worth thinking about. And I think that's the invitation for us this morning. That's our vision for 2024. 
is that we would have a culture of discipleship, and that would be the things that we devote ourselves to as a church family. But I say it's our vision for 2024 in the same way that I say breathing oxygen is our vision for 2024, if you know what I'm saying. It's like, yeah, it's our vision, but also we, that's just also what we hope is the thing that we do regularly, always, to the end of days. That's what we mean by culture of discipleship. This is not a thing that we do, a ministry effort we deploy. It's the air we breathe. It's our church's life and heartbeat and our blood through our veins, right? Paul's method for maturity, Paul's vision for maturity is is achieved through Paul's method for maturity, a culture where each of us, every saint, takes ownership of every saint, of, of presenting one another mature in Christ. That's what we hope our culture is as a church family. Now, as we think about this, you know, I wonder if we could maybe consider some alternatives to a culture of discipleship. What are some things that a church could sort of have a culture of instead of a culture of discipleship? There's a lot that could be said here, but I thought of a few examples. A church could have, instead of a culture of discipleship, a church could have a culture of consumerism. A culture of consumerism. Where I show up, where I get my goods for the week... I laugh at Trevor's stupid comments that he weren't in his manuscript that he probably regrets saying because he definitely does. <laughs> Come giggle at those things for a few minutes, maybe high five a couple of people. Uh, but I attend when it makes sense for my family. Um, I, I, I'm involved to the extent that it's convenient. As long as my kid doesn't have a tournament, as long as my family's not traveling somewhere, then I'll be there. Then, then I guess we can be there and I guess we can be involved. We could have a culture of consumerism. We could have a a culture of individualism where everybody here is like pigs fighting at a trough for access to the meal, right? Where it's like, I have no regard for the people around me. I'm here to get me in Jesus' time and I'm here to receive the stuff I want to receive. But all of these people are like this necessary evil to doing church. Ugh, gross. Get away from me. Don't talk to me. The shaking hands time is a nightmare. I want to be out of here as soon as this thing is over. Culture of individualism. We could have a culture of performance, where I don't have any real interest in any of this stuff. I come because it gets my wife off of my back. Or I come because we're in Greer, South Carolina, and it's the expectation that I'm going to darken the doors of a church, doggone it. So I'm here because I just, I just got to check this box. Culture of performance. We can have a culture of activity where we're constantly just doing stuff. This is actually, I think, a live temptation for every church. And I think a temptation for our church is that we would do stuff for the sake of doing stuff. I think an an important category to have in our minds is activity does not equal sign faithfulness. A full church calendar means nothing in and of itself. Uh, Here's an analogy to, to think about this. Here's a picture of a plant. Now, what do you call that little wooden thing that's in the plant there? What do you call that? Trellis. Yeah. What do you call that? What do you call that sort of type of plant that's grown up on the trellis typically? Po- I was going vine, but pothos works. Thank you. Green thumb merit. All right, what is the point of a trellis? What does a trellis do? It serves the support, serves the growth of the plant, right? The point of that trellis is to help that pothos I've learned grow, right? That's the goal of the plant. The whole point of the trellis is, well, something besides the trellis. It's to help that vine grow, to become established and mature. All right, what if you came over to my house and you saw the pothos over here and you noticed that I was constantly tweaking and looking at and adoring and touching and, and the, the trellis and was sort of wishy-washy towards the health of that plant? What would you, what would you say about that? 
You say your priorities are all out of whack. I know some of you have named your plants, and you would take personal offense that I would neglect that pothos. You would say that there was something wrong with, here, with me here if you saw me obsessing over the trellis, especially if it were at the expense of the health of the vine. Many years ago, I read a book called The Trellis and the Vine that used this analogy that was a kind of paradigm shifter for me. It said that the trellis, as it relates to church, are the structures and the programs and the calendar events. The trellis is the thing that supports the growth of the vine. What is the vine? It's the people of God. It's the church. It's the heart and souls. It's the people and it's their growth. And so a trap that churches can fall into is, well, a lot of trellis work to the neglect of the vine. Ministries and events and programs and structures and ministries and events and programs and structures. And then we do it again, then we do it again, and we do it again. Obsessing over the trellis with, at best, wishy-washy posture towards the vine. Eventually, the pastors become managers of volunteers. They've got to keep things staffed because, well, we've got to keep the thing going. That's the way it's always been. The health of the vine is irrelevant. It's the trellis that we've got to maintain. And honestly, this is a tension that we live in as a young church in a new building trying to sort of find our way and, and sort out what the Lord has for us. What are appropriate levels of trellis work, programs and structures and emails and spreadsheets and calendar events, what are appropriate levels of trellis work that propagate the vine, that nurture your and my maturity in Jesus? We do not want to be a church with a culture of activity, a culture of trellis work that is ambivalent towards the vine. You follow? That's one trap we could fall into, is to be a church with a culture of activity, a culture of trellis work. Another sort of alternative culture is a culture of maintenance. A church that just wants to keep things keeping. That, that, that's, that, that wants to be low-key, that doesn't want to make waves, no messes, no challenges, just keep it steady, eddy, no surprises, no changes, ever. Culture of maintenance. We could be a, a church that has a culture of intellectualism. We love to slice things thin. We like to argue about the millennium and those kinds of things, which are totally appropriate. But those things are not the sorts of things that we want to be our culture, our ethos. Now, here's the last thing I mentioned. Contra a culture of discipleship, we can have a culture of hanging out over similar interests. A culture of just yucking it up. Jamie Dunlap, an author, distinguishes between what he calls gospel communities and gospel plus communities. Gospel communities are communities where we look around the room and we say, Jesus brings us together. Gospel plus communities are where we look around the room that says, Jesus is ancillary to the fact that this other thing brings us together. Jesus plus intellectual interest. Jesus plus life stage. Jesus plus politics. Again, this is a live risk for any church, and I think it's even a live risk for our church it's not to say that there can't be overlap between the things that we have interest in and the Lord Jesus, of course. That's always going to be the case. But the question is, what's the heartbeat of our community? Is it the gospel and Jesus and his work in our life and our maturity in him? Or is it Jesus plus something else? You stick a room full of Braves fans in a room, they're going to have a good time. You put a room full of Christian Braves fans in a room, and they're going to have a great time. But is that biblical community? The answer is No. We want to be a church that has a culture of discipleship, not that's a church of just hanging out over the things that interest us, but a church that devotes themselves to one another, to each other, to see one another grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Don Carson, another author in a book called Love in the Hard Places, said this about being a gospel community. 
He said, ideally, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural uh, co-location, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says, and he commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. That's the vision. This is, I think, what Paul calls us to in passages like Ephesians 4. And I think each of these counterexamples are completely foreign to the vision that Paul has for the church in Ephesians 4. You know, something that's interesting is, is we always do membership interviews with folks who come to be a part of Ridgewood. It's uh, our membership process. Um, it, members, as you know, one piece of that is we hear your story of how you came to faith in Jesus. The pastors will sit down with each of you. We'll, we'll hear um, about how you came to know the Lord, about your previous church experience. And so we've done this with a lot of people. And here's one thing that we find to be true for the overwhelming majority of every soul in this room. One thing that we find to be almost 100% consistent, you know what it is? At some point in your faith, somebody took an interest in you. A pastor, a mentor, an older brother, an older sister, a godly parent, a college student when you were in high school, a mentor that was a part of your youth group, whatever it was, whatever it was, some person took some kind of interest in you. It wasn't a guy millions of miles away from you, accessible by YouTube. It was some older person whose dinner table you sat at that invested in you. That is true of me. As thankful as I am for John Piper and C.S. Lewis and everybody else, it was guys like Shane that you've never heard of, or Steve that you've never heard of, or Michael that you've never heard of, or Matt or John or Paul that you have never heard of. These men who took an interest in me. And so the invitation for you today is real straightforward. To be a church that is characterized with a culture of discipleship, I'm just inviting you to be for someone what someone was for you at some leg in your spiritual journey. Follow me? Take interest in someone else's maturity in Christ this week. That's your exhortation. Take interest in someone else's maturity in Christ this week. This is how I think we create and sustain a culture of discipleship. What could that be? What does that look like? Well, I'm going to go out on a limb and, and suggest that you have laundry to do this week. Is that true? True or false? You have laundry? Okay, what if you invited somebody over and you said, hey, as I fold laundry, tell me about your life. Tell me about your Bible reading. Are you doing a Bible reading plan this year? What books did you read last year that were encouraging to you? Tell me about your walk with the Lord, your ups, your downs. And let me encourage you from my ups and downs in the past as I fold my child's underwear, Right? What about somebody in your group who is going through some kind of hardship? Is there somebody in your community group that is grieving this week? What if you cooked them dinner, you wrote an encouraging note? You, you say, I don't know what to say, say in the note, I don't know what to say, but I love you, here's the note, I just hope you're encouraged by this, and you bring them dinner, you leave it with the lasagna. What if you were like Jim Slice Sr., and you said, I gotta go run to the dump, I'm gonna call somebody to ride in the car with me as I run to, the, to drop stuff off at the dump, and we'll just, we'll just talk about the things of God in the car on the way over there. What if you were like Sandy Camp, and you just shared the gospel with your literal neighbors because they needed to know about the Lord Jesus. Do you plan on eating dinner this week at any point? What if you invited somebody over? What if you let them help you clean up and do the dishes and you just talked about Jesus 
and you, you did it awkwardly, and, you, and it was tough, and you don't know what you're doing, and you're not sure how to do it, but you, but you risked it, and risked it, and you did it anyway. What could the Lord do with that? What if you made uh, Sunday afternoon lunches your mission to just fill and encourage with some soul? Every, every Sunday, we're going to El Jalisco, and we're going to talk about the things of God. If you're introverted, I'd say start small. One person, just one person, invite them into your life. If you're broke, come to El Jalisco and fill up on chips. They're free. What if you plop a little something in the crock pot before worship and refuse to have leftovers? Invite somebody over that afternoon and you come on Sundays like, like the predator, like hunting down who I'm going to invite to eat the chili in my crock pot at home. Come early to church, stay late after church, don't skedaddle at the benediction, talk to people, pray for people, hear on the spot as they share their burdens with you. Ask follow-up questions about Bible reading or things that you have prayed for for them. Risk being awkward by talking about these things with these brothers and sisters. How could you take an interest in somebody else's maturity this week? There's a million ways. I could give you a bunch of book recommendations, but I'll do you one better than that. I would say, go hang out with Zach and Sarah Gilliam. Just go hang out with the Gilliams. Watch what they do. Write it down. Go do what they do. Go hang out with Aaron and Casey Markham. Watch what they do. Write it down. Do what they do. Bada bang, bada boom. Go hang out with Marshall and Shanna Pierce. Watch what they do. Do what they do. And you're golden. Josh and Liz Pegram. Hang out with them. Do what they do. Dylan and Bree Temples, hang out with them. Do what they do. Dylan and I work out together on occasion, and we can't work out without him bringing up being godly. And I'm like, Dylan, I'm working out to take a break from talking about work stuff, and you're trying to bring it in here. Take notes and do what these people do, and, and Lord willing, let's see what happens from this. Let's see if we can have a church that is devoted to taking responsibility for one another's maturity in Christ. And Lord willing, let's fling this. I think we have a good thing going here, and it's our hope that we could plant or revitalize churches as the Lord allows and take this genetic material and just kind of spread it, which is a weird analogy, but you know what I mean. We've said before that we hope this room is not the same room in two, five, ten years, and it won't be. Life will move on, but we hope it's purposefully not the same. We hope that we get some of y'all out of here so that we can share this DNA, this culture of discipleship all over the world. And let's build towards something that's going to last forever. Paul tells us that one day with unveiled faces, we will behold the Lord Jesus. And you know who we will behold the Lord Jesus with? One another. Can you imagine that? The songs that we sing in fellowship today are not going to stop today. We're going to sing together as the saints that belong to Jesus for eternity. I will look to my left, and whether I like it or not, I will see Elisa Bridger there. We will be together forever as God's people. Could we prepare for that day? I mean, what will it be like to sing with Ben Trent there and Elisa Bridger there and Benji Bird there, worshiping and adoring Jesus shoulder to shoulder with this person and this person? We'll look at each other and we'll say, I can't believe we're here. Can you believe we're here? And we'll say, man, I'm so glad that we devoted ourselves to one another there back then when we arrive at that day. Could we devote ourselves to having a culture of discipleship to 2024 and beyond? Next few moments, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is actually a, a crucial tool in the discipleship of the Lord's church because it gives us a visceral, pictured reminder that Jesus was broken and bled for us. It gives us a reminder as we share these elements, it gives us a reminder that we all belong to the Lord Jesus. And as we often say, as we take, it's given to us as the appetizer to the feast that is to come on that day when we will behold the Lord Jesus. 
In a few moments, I'll pray. Then after I pray, I will read our communion liturgy. We'll invite folks up uh, by kind of going along the walls. We'll have four tables here in the room. We'll invite you to go up along these walls, take the elements, return to your seats, hold on to the elements, and we'll take all at once in just a few moments. Lord Jesus, we love you. We need you. We long to be a church that is pressing towards you, pressing towards maturity in you and all that we do. We pray that as we stumble upwards toward that, that you would give us strength and clarity. And we pray that you would help us to be of one mind as a church family and be excited about the possibility of of being able to move the needle towards godliness in one another. We pray for your help. We pray as we take these elements in these next few moments, we would be strengthened for the task of discipleship, that our faith would be renewed, that our hope in you would be strengthened, that you would unite us through the taking of the supper. We love you. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.